This is Sit Rap on BFBS. This week, how far should we go in Libya? The military objectives are very clear, the protection of civilians. The military operation will not be able to cease until Gaddafi is removed. And how serious is the threat from Northern Ireland's dissident terrorists? Approximately 50 kilograms of homemade explosives. If that bomb had have exploded and anyone was close by, they would have been killed or seriously injured. Libya's foreign minister is being questioned by British officials after saying he's no longer willing to work for Colonel Gaddafi. Musa Kusa flew into the UK on Wednesday, apparently on a British military plane. It's potentially a significant move almost two weeks into the military offensive against Colonel Gaddafi's forces. But can the international coalition arranged against him hold together? Already Russia's expressed its fears that the airstrikes stray beyond the UN's remit. NATO has now assumed control of the operation, as reports from the US say President Obama has approved covert support for Libya's rebels. Earlier this week, he insisted regime change is no business of the US or the world outside Libya. If we tried to overthrow Gaddafi by force, our coalition would splinter. We have intervened to stop a massacre. And we will work with our allies and partners to maintain the safety of civilians. It may not happen overnight, as a badly weakened Gaddafi tries desperately to hang on to power. But it should be clear to those around Gaddafi and to every Libyan that history is not on Gaddafi's side. With the time and space that we have provided for the Libyan people, they will be able to determine their own destiny. And that is how it should be. Well, in an interview for the BBC's Arabic TV network, David Cameron has insisted the coalition has no long-term interest in Libya. Britain or France or America, we have no selfish interest in Libya, no strategic interest in Libya. This is not about Libyan oil. This is literally, we want to stop this dictator murdering his people at the invitation of the Arab League, according to the United Nations. That is our interest. This is not Iraq. This is not what has happened in the past. Well, to discuss the latest events in Libya, I'm joined by Claire Spencer, the head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House, Michael Codner, who's the Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, and, of course, BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, hello to all three of you. Claire Spencer hello. first. If Musakusa's defection is a spontaneous decision to leave Libya, how significant is that? 
Well, it's what uh, the coalition has been hoping for, which is to use the pressure on Gaddafi to break away his inner circle uh, from his side, as it were, um, in order to, you know, engineer a sort of political breakdown. But I don't know if this is uh, going to be followed by any others. And indeed, um, the foreign minister himself uh, is widely accused, not just by uh, the opposition forces in Libya, but elsewhere, of his own role in humanitarian uh, crimes. And they're calling for him to stand for trial. So others may judge it's a bit late to jump ship. And indeed, the, the foreign Secretary William Hague has said that he won't be granted any kind of immunity. No, I think they're still at the stage, obviously, of questioning him because obviously they've got to be sure that this is a genuine defection and, you know, that uh, he could well be carrying messages. They obviously want to understand from him what Gaddafi's latest thinking is. So I think they, they certainly not in public will be making any judgment about this soon. Uh, Christopher, we've been told this week that there are flickers of Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah activity among the Libyan rebels. Do we really know who it is we're siding with? I think you, we have to be very careful when we talk about Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda isn't a brigade. It isn't a company, a battalion or whatever. Al-Qaeda, we've always understood, is a, an overriding uh, idea uh, with people like Osama bin Laden, yes, etc. But it's not as if the Al-Qaeda brigade has moved in. Uh, it's just the same way we have to be very careful. Some of the so-called rebels uh, were actually fighting against the coalition in Iraq. They were fighting against us in Iraq. So that's where we have to put it in perspective. And as for the, de de the defection, the one thing I'm interested in particularly is who told him it was possible if he had to come here who supplied the aeroplane, and fascinatingly, he arrived at Farnborough Airport. Now, you don't just turn up at Farnborough Airport, and so there's a much bigger and darker operation to bring him here than we might imagine, just as he can actually say, who else do, does he think is fighting down in the rebel camps? And Michael Codner, William Hague again has said this is very significant and it, it's evidence that Gaddafi's regime is, is crumbling. But this week we've had a lot of back and forth, rebel advances, pro-Gaddafi forces pushing them back. There's no evidence here that this is moving significantly in one direction or the other yet. Well, any, um, any operation involving uh, trying to seize... Um, territory and imposed military control, what the rebels are trying to do, uh, reaches a stage when uh, it, it, as it were, bogs down when the, uh, the lines of operation are so long that the forces can't support themselves and not organised enough. So uh, there's almost an inevitability about some stalemate at some stage. This doesn't mean that for other reasons things won't move on, but uh, we're at that stage at the moment. Claire Spencer, President Obama has said this week the coalition's not there to force regime change, but also we've had reports out of Washington that he's approved covert support for the rebels, and both America and Britain are considering arming them. If we're not for regime change, it's a very funny way of showing it. Yes, and this very issue, as we've seen already in discussions about this, is in danger of... Uh of forcing the coalition apart in that, uh, again, this morning we've had statements out of NATO saying that rearming the rebels is not part of uh, the UN Security Council resolution uh, 1973. The French have said the same, interestingly, given that they were, that they were at the forefront. So I think uh, covert arming of, uh, of the forces is frankly what I've expected them to be, be trying to do since clearly on the rebel side there's two problems. One is the organisation of, of what they're doing. They're very keen, but as 
as, as we've seen from television coverage, uh, they're not uh, strategically or in, indeed, except on rare occasions, tactically very efficient. And uh, secondly, obviously, they're, they're running out of arms. Michael. Yes, uh, over the rearming, um, there is rearming and rearming. There is providing ammunitions, providing small arms and perhaps um, uh, uh, rockets, uh, handheld rockets, etc. for protection. And then there's rearming, providing tanks, uh, artillery and all of those sorts of things. And under the UN resolution, quite clearly, the first would be uh, allowing uh, the rebels uh, to protect themselves, etc. The other would be for offensive operations. Uh, and those offensive operations can actually um, be replicated, used by the um, by the uh, intervening powers using air power. Um, the problem with anyhow with those is, of course, no training, uh, no organisation, nothing else to use them effectively for a manoeuvre operation against uh, against um, Gaddafi's forces. Well, let's let's move on to Syria now, where the country's president's vowing he will defeat the uprising against his regime, which he's called a big plot based outside his country. For a fortnight now, there have been mass protests in which at least 60 people have been killed. This week, the entire cabinet resigned. But Bashar al-Assad, while promising further reforms, also insisted the protesters opposed to him have been duped by outsiders. Events that we have witnessed is a test for our unity. Our enemies are doing on a daily basis to attack and sabotage the stability of Syria. But they are stupid as well because they have chosen the wrong nation and the wrong people. Well, Claire Spencer, President Assad says there's a foreign plot against him and in Damascus there's been some talk about Saudi influence. Well, I think the inference has also been the Israelis, um, any outsiders who are deemed to be uh, against uh, the Syrians being uh, in alliance with Iran. You know, for a long time, the Middle East has been depicted as a pro-Western and an anti-Western alliance. And although Syria has made noises about coming in from the cold, it's certainly not going to do so uh, through uh, giving up its links with Iran. Um, so I think, you know, this this is an old technique to say, I mean, most of, most of the leaders we've noticed including uh, Ben Ali at the beginning in Tunisia and uh, uh, Mubarak in Egypt have claimed that outsiders and terrorist elements and others are responsible for this, anything to admit that there is a critical mass of voices against him. And in this respect, it has to be said, there was quite a number of people were marshalled in the streets, rent a crowd or other, in support of Assad uh, the day before. Uh, so this is still in the balance. Now, Christopher, it, 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 it's very easy to be sort of lost in this dizzying whirl of endless protests across the region. So on Syria, how significant is what happens in Syria to the wider region? It's, a, it's, it's very significant because it's what other, how other people react to it. Uh, Syria may not be the linchpin, for example, that Egypt is, in the, as far as the West is, so-called West is concerned. But when you consider that this is a... Um, this is something which, if you look, for example, <clears throat> me, on Facebook, uh, the Syrian Revolution 2011 uh, slot, um, it's coming from different countries. People are writing, from uh, Israelis are writing, uh, Turks are writing, Saudis even uh, writing on that Facebook slot. It, it affects everybody, and it affects everybody from Turkey, if you like, in the north, right the way around, certainly Israel, a border, uh, for example, the arming or traditional arming of Hezbollah, uh, uh, again on the Syria uh, on the Israeli border, everybody is wondering which way 
Syria jumps. 22 million people. Uh, They're not all, not all, against uh, Assad. Uh, Some have even sort of praised the idea that beneath it all, he is a reforming is a reforming president, although there are not many signs of that at the moment. Michael? It's really a question for Claire, I think, the role of Turkey in um, in uh, Syria. Of course, we were interested in Turkey in relation to Libya, but of course Turkey's right on the border of Syria and and um, whether the, there is any a positive role that Turkey could play in all of this. I mean, Claire, briefly, do, do you think Turkey could intervene here? Well, I think Turkey over the recent years has been playing a very interesting strategy by opting out of this zero-sum game of there being an alliance of the good and the pro-democracy promoters, which is the way the West and Israel has depicted themselves against the reactionary forces of Iran and its allies. Uh, Turkey does business with all of them. Uh, It has contracts with uh, Iran, with uh, Russia, with uh, Syria, by the way. They've just concluded a major dam uh, project deal, while uh, two Tunisia and Egypt were occupying the minds of everybody else. So business as usual, they're playing a cautious game as we've seen in Libya by insisting that they're they're not going to take a belligerent role, that their role is humanitarian. They've expressed concern about uh, overdoing things and civilian civilian casualties. So I think obviously they're going to be concerned if Syria rolls out of control, but I think they'll be monitoring the situation very carefully. I think that we won't, though, see any military movements from the the Turkish side, uh, despite the size of their army. It's a topic we'll doubtless return to next week. Claire Spencer, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. Still to come on SITREP, the latest from the Arctic as Prince Harry joins four wounded servicemen preparing to trek to the North Pole. It's brilliant to have him along. He's a really, really good bloke and he's been great company on this so far. We went out for a ski yesterday, um, which was his first time Nordic skiing, and he took to it like a Dutch horse. Now, is the RAF about to run out of pilots? A newspaper this week claimed cuts in trainee numbers imposed after last autumn's defence review have stretched resources to breaking point. Thomas Harding is the Daily Telegraph's defence correspondent. There are 24 pilots essentially to uh, man the UK defences, uh, a further dozen or so uh, to man the, the Falklands in the four aircraft down there. And then we've got 18 Typhoon pilots in Italy carrying out the um, enforcement of the no-fly zone uh, over Libya. So that leaves us with just 15 left out of the 69 pilots in total. You've got people coming through the pipeline that uh, are not undergoing any flying training. They might be doing flight simulation or, or ground training, uh, but not no flying. So there's going to be perhaps a, a sort of dent in the pipeline when uh, more pilots are needed in the future. Well, Michael Codner is still with me, as is Christopher Lee. Christopher, the MOD says there are enough pilots and enough aircraft for all operational tasks, but these plans were drawn up a long time before action over Libya was even a, a vague possibility. Yes, and the and the whole thing about the action over Libya, they're now turning around and saying, well, look, you put us into a war, and it is a war, you are, we're on operations. Uh, we can't take the cuts that you want us to take. But this is part of a battle. I was looking at some figures that came out in March, the 7th of March, they're not sort of uh, up-in-the-sky figures. These come from the National Audit Office. And if you look what the National Audit Office was saying this morning about the MOD's inability to manage all these commitments that it's got, they come from also the Ministry of Defence's own DOC audit uh, committee, the Defence Minister's statements at different times. What do they show? They show that t- Tornado, that's the GR4 that's going into Libya at the moment, um, to maintain it for four years cost £975 million. That's the projected cost. 
the Harrier, I have to tell you, the Harrier GR9 and the, and the Ark Royal, the aircraft carrier, would only cost £402 million to maintain it over that same period. Now, that is the discrepancy. It doesn't matter which one performs better, but that's the discrepancy in the figures, which then go to the Treasury, then go to the Prime Minister's office, and they look round and say, listen, what do you actually need? Ours is the RAF. We're fighting a war for you down in Libya. What we need is to be able to have enough aircraft, enough pilots, enough pilots when the squadron actually hands over to take over after that. And that is the debate that's going on at the moment. And the uh, National Audit Office uh, report this morning is saying exactly that. Everybody is getting the management of it wrong. Michael, if that, if that cash discrepancy between the tornadoes and the Harriers, if that, if that discrepancy is there and was f- that knowledge was floating around Whitehall, the question becomes why were the decisions taken in the way that they were? Well, um, uh, I don't want to be partisan in this, but uh, clearly um, Tornado represents uh, a core capability of the Royal Air Force um, and Harriers was a shared capability with the Royal Navy and preserving the Royal Air Force uh, uh, as the force that it was before, um, Tornado is very important in that respect. I would say a couple of things about Tornado itself. I mean, it does have considerably greater range than Harrier. It does have the capacity to carry weapons and uh, reconnaissance sensors and all of this to a greater level. It doesn't have the agility and to be able to be flown from very small areas, etc., that Harrier has. But there are some advantages which would go with the greater costs of Harrier. Many of the greater costs relate to its age, of course, and all of that. But I think the whole thing should be seen in the context of the decisions the government took over... Uh, the defence review and that it was unlikely we would be doing anything else major apart from Afghanistan for the next four or five years and that's where um, you could say the mistake was and this doesn't just apply to the RAF, you've got big problems with the Navy, with the Royal Marines and everybody else addressing this much wider situation and the events we haven't yet encountered which are likely to happen in the next five years. Christopher, you want to come in very 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 quickly five uh, five seconds Um, we are just about to get the figures for the new spending round. That's not the Strategic Defence and uh, uh, Security Review, SDSR, the new lot for, for this year. That's going to raise this whole thing again about the bad management and who was right and who was wrong. It doesn't matter. They're at war. And that's the bad management at the end, managed by the very people that are at the top of the heap now, not just the civil servants, but also the military. The military chiefs of staff, who are now at the top, they got it very, very wrong. And somebody ought to be asking, for what reason did they get it wrong? Did they know they were getting it wrong, or was it just incompetence? Well, let's quickly uh, move on to Afghanistan, because it's all changed there at the moment. Uh, American Marine Corps Major General Richard Mills has just completed his year in command of NATO troops in southern Afghanistan. You do feel as if you're walking out in the middle of a movie to a certain extent. Uh, you, you want to see how it ends, but I think now I can predict a very happy ending for this movie. Uh, I think the frustration perhaps has been the, uh, uh, the resiliency of the enemy. I think in his, uh, his lack of, uh, of acknowledging the fact that uh, things have changed within Helmand Province. Now, he praised British troops for their magnificent contribution in Afghanistan. And on the ground in Helmand, three commando brigades taking over from 16 Air Assault Brigade. And Christopher, among this new deployment, a lot of reservists. Is that significant? Yes, it is. Britain cannot go to a war on any operational, long-term operation now, uh, certainly not without its reservists. The MOD has a a list of between seven and 800 reservists. That's all that they can call on who are fully trained up. Uh, to be able to, uh, to to go to an operational area, it's going to need 676, I think, with this three commander uh, brigade 
uh, deployment. Uh, that's quite a lot from a list from guys who are going to say, sorry, can't, can't come, not in training, can't get away from the job, etc. It also raises something else. If you look at the medics, uh, the British Army uh, cannot operate in, the, in a battle zone without civilian medics in, the, in a TA sort of position. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, squadrons, the naval squadrons that are going with 3 Commander Brigade, a lot of them are from the Maritime Reserve. It is impossible now to do it without uh, reserves. There is a, an inquiry going on, and when it reports, I think a lot of people have to reorganize uh, the reserves and also change their minds on what you use reserves for, including what you do when you get them back, because they're not necessarily in the system. They suffer all the traumas that other soldiers, for example, soldiers uh, suffer, but they don't always get the care and attention afterwards. So it's a big subject. Michael, very briefly, uh, you said there is that there is that inquiry going on into reservists, and, and, and that issue of support is a problem, isn't it? Uh, yes, uh, the the moment the use of reserves is, is is fairly complex and fairly mixed, and it also relates very much to the army regimental structure, where reserves have a traditional role. There are other purposes for reserves as well. One of them could be, or, or is, and could be contributing to the. Um, to, to resilience and domestic security in the sort of National Guard way that they, they do in America. Um, the other is actually linking with the public in public understanding of the military, something that has, uh, has uh, weakened considerably since the end of conscription and all of that. Um, and uh, it is quite a complex problem to pull all of this together and have a really clear policy for reserves, for what they're for, what they do for the future. And there's a lot of disagreement within the services and within the reserve community itself as to how this should be taken forward. OK, Michael Codner, thanks very much for your time today. Now, for the first time, the Northern Ireland Assembly has completed a four-year term without collapsing or being suspended, but not everyone is committed to a peaceful way forward. A few days ago, the army defused a large bomb left outside Londonderry's main courthouse. Police are blaming dissident Republicans. His chief superintendent, Stephen Martin. It was approximately 50 kilograms of homemade explosives contained within a beer keg, contained within a stolen vehicle. If that bomb had have exploded and anyone was close by, they would have been killed or seriously injured, and there would have been considerable damage to nearby property. Well, security across Northern Ireland is high after a surge in shootings and bombings targeting soldiers and police officers. And we're joined on the line by Northern Ireland analyst Chris Ryder. Chris, how significant is this rise in dissident activity? Well, there's been an inexorable rise in dissident activity for the last two or three years, and uh, there's a, a steady uh, flow of incidents now, such as the one you referred to, um, since that, there's been another big incident in North Belfast. There was a, a shooting uh, incident, uh, and when the police uh, went to investigate it, they were uh, alerted to a call to the Samaritans saying there's a, a bomb in, in, in the area. So uh, because of the risk, they evacuated about 200 homes overnight, and the ATOs had to go in and make a clear and do a clearance operation. Now, that turned out to be a hoax, but uh, they don't know that at the time. They have to treat every one of uh, these incidents as a, a potential live device. And so uh, there, that, that's the pattern. It's at a much lower level than, of course, it was at the head of the Troubles, but uh, it still continues. And there's a worrying uh, sidebar to it now in that we're beginning to see some extreme loyalists uh, using pipe bombs again to attack people associated with the Catholic community. Uh, none of these have, have really been uh, serious incidents that the devices have exploded harmlessly or they've been discovered. But uh, w when you have this... Uh, 
constant threat and these people constantly placing devices, there's always the risk that, that, that something's going to go off and somebody's going to get hurt or injured. Or but how many, Chris, how many people are we actually talking about? If we combine the dissident groups, Republican and Loyalist, how many actual active members would you say we're talking well, about? I think the police view is that there's a very small number of active members, but there are an awful lot of people associated with the Republican movement who are disillusioned by the peace process. And, and uh, there's some evidence that former members of the provisional IRA are providing know-how about making bombs and, and, and targeting and that sort of thing. And uh, there's a fear that, 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 that more people are flocking to the dissidents uh, as that disillusion with the peace process continues. Well, meanwhile, the government's apologised to the family of a 12-year-old girl who was shot dead by the army in County Armagh in 1976. Magella O'Hare was on her way to church when she was shot in the back. At the time, Private Michael Williams of 3rd Battalion Parachute Regiment claimed he fired after an IRA sniper attack. He was later charged with manslaughter, but cleared. And now, Chris, this is only the second time an apology has been offered for incidents involving the army. The other is the Bloody Sunday shooting. So how, how significant is this? Well, it, it is quite significant, but it, it reflects the tip of a big iceberg. There's a huge movement uh, of people, relatives of people who, who were victims or survivors of, of incidents in the Troubles, and uh, th- th- there's a huge campaign which is backed by some pressure groups of Republican background looking for apologies for this, that and the other atrocity over the years. And um, the, 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 the focus of all this campaign is mainly against the police and the army, against the security forces, and there are a number of these campaigns running. Uh, the Bloody Sunday was, of course, the largest and, and, and the most protracted one, but you will find that there are campaigns for all sorts of operations in which the army were involved and, and where uh, so-called innocent civilians were killed. And um, the, the, the process of apology, uh, the, the demands for apology are really uh, quite uh, extensive now uh, across a whole range of incidents spanning the whole 30 or so years of the Troubles. OK, Chris, we'll have to leave you there, but Chris Ryder, thank you very much for your time. Now, on Friday, four wounded servicemen will set off from Norway on a 200-mile trek to the North Pole. All four suffered life-changing injuries while serving in Afghanistan. It'll take them around four weeks to complete the trek, hauling sledges that weigh more than 220 pounds in temperatures as low as minus 60 Celsius. And for the first few days, they'll have an extra team member, Prince Harry. This project um, exemplifies the tenacity and courage of those who serve our country. It really is that simple. Um, They're a huge example to us all, these guys and all the other wounded service men and women around the country. Um, And just what a wonderful inspiration they are um, to, to take on this massive challenge. The Prince speaking earlier this year, who is the patron of the charity Walking with the Wounded, which hopes to raise around £2 million from the trek. Well, earlier I spoke to Captain Guy Disney, who's one of the men taking part. He lost part of his right leg in a grenade attack in Afghanistan two years ago. And I started by asking him about their final preparations. Looking pretty good. We had a good ski yesterday for about five, six hours. And um, the days before that, I've been packing our polks, our sledges uh, for the final launch. And, and we're pretty happy at the moment. I mean, as with all things, just looking forward to getting on with it. I mean, this is a huge challenge for anyone, let alone someone who's, who's been, been badly injured. And I mean, the amount of training involved in this must be enormous. I, I've been really, really lucky with the, the time my regiment's given me to do this. Um, I'm with the Light Dragoons, and they've, they've been pretty much outstanding letting me crack on and do this, because um, obviously I'm pretty committed to Army stuff as well. Um, and I don't think it's something you can go into if you're underprepared. Um, but luckily, yeah, we've had a good, good amount of time training. You're hauling these massive sledges that weigh more than 220 pounds. How do you train for that? 
Um, bit of tire dragging, a lot of time tabbing with tires. Um, I've been trying to put on weight, which is quite hard work actually. I've probably put on two, three kilos. Um, uh, and it's just, it's endurance fitness. It's a very different kind of fitness to um, something I've, I've trained before. Now, what are the biggest dangers that you're going to face on this track? I think for us, the biggest risks and dangers are the extreme cold at the moment. It's about minus 50, 54 up on the ice. Um, we're currently in Spitsbergen, which is in the Arctic Circle, um, just north of Norway, and it's about minus 30 up here at the moment. And so it's good to acclimatise, but the, the frostbite risk is a huge danger. And, and you're expecting it to take a, you know, the best part of a month to get this done, so it, we're not talking about a short time in those kind of conditions. No, it'd be like being on exercise for three weeks. Pretty miserable, I think. Now, you've got Prince Harry with you for the first few days. How important is that? It's brilliant because I'm, more than anything, it really raises the profile um, of the charity. We're doing this for, for four service charities. Um, so the, the response we've had is from the media have been amazing since he's come up. Um, and, yeah, it's great. And then, secondly, it's brilliant to have him along. He's a really, really good bloke, and he's been great company on this so far. We went out for a ski yesterday, um, which was his first time Nordic skiing, and he took to it like a Dutch horse. He's very happy, and he's out this evening just get, get practicing the routine. Now, what will happen with the money that you raise through the track? Uh, well, it's going to four service charities, but it's mainly focused on the resettlement and retraining of injured servicemen, which is obviously close to the... There's four of us who are in the, in the army who have been injured through ops in Afghanistan, and it's very much focusing on the retraining, resettlement of guys when they come to leave the forces. We've got a, a website called walkingwiththewounded.org.uk, which has a Just Giving page, but also a, a board to leave messages of support, which were really well received. Um, but if anyone's keen to donate, it'd be fantastic, and it goes straight to charity. Captain Guy at Disney. Well, Prince Harry, incidentally, features on the cover of the new issue of GQ magazine. And for every copy of that that's sold, there's a donation to Walking with the Wounded. Christopher, quickly before we go, an out-of-left-field suggestion about why Musakusa might have fled Libya for here. OK, he turns up in a private aeroplane, and we know the SI's got a private aeroplane. He turns up at a high-security government airfield, Farnborough. Instead of defecting, as he's supposed to have done, and he's not going to get diplomatic immunity over this, might he just be here to negotiate the uh, exit of the big man the big man so if this time next week we're talking about that you heard that here first uh, oh it. I'm in the sack or oh, you're in the sack <laughs> that's it for this week thanks very much to Michael Codner to Christopher Lee don't forget to get in touch with us our email sitrep at bfbs.com Kate's back next week but from me Paul Osborne thanks for listening and goodbye DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS.